Cool. Well, we'll just kick off then and we'll just um, we'll just kick off and we'll say, Chris, lovely to, to, to join us. Thanks for coming along and talking to us. I think probably best, Chris, if you just tell us a wee bit about yourself and the organisation you represent and, you know, yeah, just take it from there. Yeah, well, I'll start by saying I love I love the podcast. I love what you, you guys have been doing. It's a, I'm a bit of a fanboy in truth. So You're really cool. It's a, it feels a bit of a privilege to be honest. Um, yeah, hi, uh, I'm Chris Clark. I'm uh, the Performance and Improvement Director at SCAPE, um, which is a framework provider, public sector framework procurement provider. Um, specialist in built environments so we don't we don't do procurement of paper and stuff like that we're, we're completely focused on construction civils consultancy um i came from local authority before scape so I, I worked in public sector for 14 years before i went to scape um and i suppose i should probably explain scape is a it's a public sector company so it's owned by six local authorities mm. uh only shareholders of local authorities any money we make goes back into public sector um yeah. not that we do make very much but we have to be completely 100 self-sustaining so we that's our model we have to we have to support ourselves nobody looks after us except us but uh and no, who, it's, who, it's, who are those authorities just in a specific uh, so we are um we're we've got the um the, the d2n2 community so that's the derbyshire and nottinghamshire authorities so the city and county authorities um, Warwickshire and uh, Gateshead, uh, um, and the the reason it's a, a, a tortuous history, but the reality is that the organisations that own Scape were the organisations that that owned the Clasp system build originally, mm-hmm. uh, which, if you're not indoctrinated into acronyms, it's um, the uh, very lightweight steel frame building system that was used in the baby boom era onwards to make public buildings very quickly, mm-hmm. um, and most of the authorities are. That have used it a lot are um, areas that mine coal substantially because the ground conditions were bad. So throwing lightweight buildings onto bad ground was a good thing for them to be doing. Interesting, um, yeah. fascinating, and and that's actually really interesting. From uh, and I don't want to go kind of full anorak with this too quickly, um, but um, that really really supports um, as we start to focus on life cycle assessment and embodied carbon, um, the kinds of approaches that you end up being drawn towards. You know, uh, systems which which literally and in in carbon terms um, tread lightly on the earth. You know, um, yeah. uh, it, it, it and it, it's completely intuitive that that if you can find ways to build that are kind of lightweight um, and that are minimizing you know the amount of excavation and concrete that you have to pour and so on, that it's gonna it's it's going to help. So it's going to help to kind of give those benefits. So is there a residue of, of that still within uh, of that knowledge really? and thinking still within scape then? Uh, yeah, yeah. We, we, well, we still have. Um, so we have the IP responsibility for the the system design. It was it was owned by several local authorities originally, and they vested it in us to have it as a sort of shared thing. Um, so we have a we have a residual responsibility, um, sort of for the IP and the design information. Although the the buildings themselves belong to the owners and the way the commissioners of them. But yeah, so we we have there's still um, in excess of two thousand class buildings in the UK. Um, but there were six different eras, so it's some of those were built as late as the early nineties. Wow! Um, the earliest ones were built in the fifties, and the the marks one to five are riddled with asbestos, which is the yeah. challenge. Um, but you know, it was a it was a yeah. dynamic and efficient and amazing material yes. for a long time, and then it was a huge issue. So. Natural material, <laughs> yeah. no less, as well. It's a, it's, a, it's an example. I always like to cite Barry Dan uh, when um, when um, we talk about this kind of overly simplistic view of nature as being inherently. Benevolent. You know, I subscribe more to the 
German filmmaker Werner Herzog's view that nature is essentially chaotic. Um, um, and, um, you know, you know that, um, that natural things are necessarily good for you, and uh, asbestos is naturally occurring. You know, um, so yeah. Um, yeah, well, it's there's there's something of the giveaway in the name, isn't there? You know, the class system is ensuring uh, yeah. inappropriate spending uh, in the, from the public sector. You know, inadequately providing for the actual needs. Someone's yeah. profiting from it. You know, it's as obvious as the the evil law that came in immediately after the the Scottish independence referendum. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Say the quiet part out loud. <laughs> As with the class system forever, they're laughing at us. Anyway, okay. <laughs> so, so just out of interest, you said there are still 2,000 about mm. of them around. How many yeah. of them were, do you know how many were built in the first place and how many are gone? Uh, th- we think there's about sort of 55, 60% still standing. Um, oh. The thing is, you have to remember that these were um, almost all used for public infrastructure. Um there are some there are some amazing class buildings. I think the University of East Anglia has a huge listed building, which is class. Um, but there are also um, network rail have several hundred signal boxes made in mm. class. So, they, they, but most of the buildings are school buildings, uh, oh. community centres, offices. Yeah. Um, and and the there's nothing particularly revolutionary about modern methods of construction. You know, CLASP was a pre-designed system built designed in the fifties. <laughs> Yeah. It's uh, it's not very modern at all, and, and and a lot of the logic about it still stands. There are a number of things you would do totally different now in terms of the the residual issues. But we we've got one of the things we're looking at with CLASP and, and research at the minute is uh, what do we do with them in terms of retrofit? What do we do with them in terms of uh, deconstruction at end of life? And mm. and uh, how do we how do we manage the steel and and cement containing materials in there at the end of their life? And that there is a lot. So. It's a it's a challenge worth uh, worth us taking on over time. That that sounds powerful, and what a wonderful insight to have um, in the context of your of your work, you know, from, from a framework's perspective. Um, yeah. You know, you actually uh, uh, it's not just a question in some ways of of, of having uh, you know designed frameworks on buildings that have been procured um, within the last five or ten years. You actually have, I think, you must have some very rare um, insights then into uh, into some of the longer term and end of life even issues that you can run into. I mean, you'd hope, of course, uh, like all the life cycle assessment in, in the UK assumes a sixty year life design life for buildings, um, and it's fifty years in the EU, which is frustratingly short as well. You, you have to hope that we're talking that we're we're going to be uh, ensuring much longer lifespans uh, for, for, for buildings and that. But still, it's, it's, it is absolutely fascinating now that you're able then to, that you're seeing uh, now, because we are starting, when we look at building life cycle assessment, we're, there's a certain amount of stuff that, that you can you can uh, assess with certainty in terms of embodied carbon, like the stuff that's actually being built now. And then you start making assumptions when you get into the use phase. You know how long the components will last, and what, uh, and how how long they'll need to be, um, how often they'll need to be repaired and replaced, and so on. And then there's the end of life, and you're making assumptions about what actually happens to the to the building at the end of life. But you're already in that. You're seeing you you're you're, you're looking at those issues suffering now. the consequences. Yeah, suffering the consequences of that. Absolutely, and 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 mostly in a positive way. But the the the, the challenge the challenge. Um, not just as owner of class, but as I mean, we, we don't own the buildings. We own 
a little piece of IP and knowledge, really. But um, owner of that and owner of the frameworks is a similar challenge in that we are um, we're, we're we're someone that has insight into the system and the holistic problem, but we don't own any of the individual projects ourselves. We don't own any of the individual buildings ourselves. So we're mm. a facilitator and a, a rule book provider rather than the person that's going to invest or manage the building at the end of life. But we can be benevolent in that. We can try and think about those users and, and think about what's needed. Yeah, we, we, it's it's. I think uh, we were talking before. I, I think that it's a challenge. It's a responsibility to be in that place because mm-hmm. you have to kind of try and put yourself in other people's shoes the whole time. You can have so much more confidence. You know, if you've got that kind of knowledge, um, uh, you know, it, it it should mean to, to the to the extent that you have the ability, uh, the bandwidth to kind of process the information about how buildings are actually forming and what's happening over time. You could have so much more confidence. Uh, in in the design of the frameworks, if 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 you're you know if you are engaging with that information, so that yeah. you're actually well, advocating the right kinds of, of approaches. Yeah, yeah, that's it exactly. I mean, you you rarely learn from your successes. Mm. It's one of them things I say all the time to all our clients. But from your failures, failures. Oh man, you learn so much. Like I like the way you failed at saying failure there as well. Know, that's pretty good. <laughs> It's, uh, like is this feeding into is this directly feeding into what you do with the frameworks or is this something it's, that's come in ambiently or through osmosis we we are um we're exploring it alongside um we do we do we do get jobs we do we do support jobs on framework building on class buildings clients use our frameworks to work on class buildings um nottinghamshire derby derbyshire derbyshire the, all, all the organizations that own scape have plenty of these buildings and they work with us a lot so there is an inevitability that we're going to get involved in some of those buildings but um just like just like the retrofit agenda in general every single one of those buildings is now unique having been operated for 30 40 years so we, we know on we know the bones are going to be similar we know broadly mm. what will make it fall down and what won't make it fall down um and we can get a fairly decent insight into some of the big picture problems but we are still looking at having to invest quite heavily in some research to to understand the retrofit dynamics of the different marks and to to think about that so that we have um scape as a framework organization is i guess about a third of what we do we also have um property management joint venture in nottinghamshire and we have some other services so the the, the benefit of having that alongside the frameworks is they inform each other so we, we do have some some beneficial relationships but you know, every every class building when you come to it has been clad differently. It's been used differently. It's been reconfigured and managed differently, and you end up with a whole set of unique problems every time. But mm-hmm. but we can at least have under the skin some system thinking. So Chris, you've, so you've got you've got six. Just going back to you know what 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 Scape doing fundamental purpose of it because a lot of people will listen to this and who who perhaps might not know the sort of. Um, um, the complexities of public procurement, but so you get six, you get six fundamental owners or six fundamental um, original um, organisations who set up the the organisation. But can anyone join Scape or can anyone can use yeah. who, who can use Scape's frameworks? So we 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 the public sector bit of what we what we always do is is open to um, all all public organisations in the UK and Ireland uh, in Northern Ireland. Um, so we have uh, uh, we have a a really responsible duty to try and make sure we list them all when we go to procurement so we can we can identify that they're all eligible um we have we've worked with about 1200 public organizations over our over our history um in the last five years as uh, i think it's 
mid 400s have worked with us mm-hmm. over the last five years actively um and it's uh it's a fair churn of work um and what's the what's the sort of what 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 are the I mean, what I'd like to ask in, in, a, in a future question is, has the dynamic change in terms of what your members are asking for and what you are looking at procuring now than you were five, yeah. ten years ago? But Absolutely. what's the numbers you're putting through of the frameworks that you have just now? What, what's this of financial, uh, what, what's the finances, what's going through those those frameworks in terms of the numbers? Yeah, um, I'm glad I'm glad I did my homework. <laughs> <laughs> I've really struggled if I hadn't done it this morning. Um, I think it's important. I think it's important for people to understand the volume out there. That, and this is a point that I've made in the podcast a number of times, is the the ability for the the ability for public procurement to impact on the wider market through bulk purchasing. But just give us an idea of some of the, the, the well, volumes. Do we yeah, need sure. to do we need to address a little bit? Like, how does a framework work? Like, yeah, what's its we purpose? Do because, we do. like, what you're describing there is is a little bit downstream, and it sort of feels like, yeah, Alex has just validated. Like we've uh, we haven't actually covered that yet, and this is something yeah. Alex and I we learned a while ago, uh, and we're still learning now because there's a there's a lot to pick up on. Hmm. Even just yeah. the basics, what what are frameworks? I mean, I'm sure Absolutely. that people that listen know, but I think it's just good to level the playing field as to just saying, right, let's go for the basics. Yeah, absolutely right, Alex. Yeah, of course. Um, so. Uh, Public procurement requires you to go through a pretty rigorous regulated process to buy anything. But the bigger, the bigger, the bigger the amount of money, the more onerous the public procurement regulations are. Um, historically, lots of people, uh, Eurosceptics, would blame Europe for the complexity of our procurement regulations. But actually, the UK enforced and pushed a lot of that regulation in Europe forward. It's a lot of it came from us, and we've we we complained about then using it standard. Um, so we, we, I mean, what, what it's all about is making sure we're giving fair and equal treatment to the market, all of those regulations, that's that's all it's about. Um, but public sector bodies have real regulatory compliance problems if they don't get it right. So there's a there's a real challenge there to, to do it right. Um, framework procurement, the idea is that you, uh, you aggregate demand and you procure in a way that can be used more than once, simplistically. So... Um, frameworks range from small to large, but you might have a framework for purchasing widgets over a five-year period, and you just say, I'm going to go out and procure a framework for all the widgets I'm going to buy rather than going through a process every three months to buy my widgets. So framework just gives you the ability to access a supplier on terms you've agreed up front for a period of time consistently without having to keep going through that very, very time-consuming procurement process. Um, so the, when, the vetting, and when you get so- into the... Uh, the construction scale procurement, and there are specific rules about procuring construction work. Um, the competitive tendering requirements that public procurement impose take it, it typically, if you consider the amount of time it takes you to specify and prepare a procurement, it, it's it's a it's eight nine months minimum a year to procure a construction project and and get it to site. So yeah, I mean, that's the reality. You've got to be transparent. You've got to advertise the requirement. You've got to give bidders time to submit what they need, and then you've got to go through the process of selecting one of them and briefing them. It's so, a it's a it's an onerous process. So so what frameworks do is they they condense that. So you you do that work once. You do it in a more rigorous way, and it takes you a little bit longer to do a framework mm-hmm. procurement process. But then once you've set the framework up, anyone who's eligible to use it can get into the delivery of the work much much more quickly without as much time up front in terms of selecting a, a contractor or a, mm. a consultant. So. Cool. So that's like a, a 360 uh, analysis 
of the potential of the other party from everything from experience, expertise to capacity. Is that Correct. right? Correct. Yeah. And the, the capacity is really important. So um, when you procure, when you, there are really tight rules about that in terms of public procurement. So you, when you go out to a contract, you're determining what you expect that contract to be worth. So at the start of a framework, we have to make a uh, an informed estimate of how much value is going to go through the framework and that limits what can be done within it so once you've decided what the volume is that when you go to procurement and set it that's what it's going to be you don't have much flexibility in that so um but, but, it, but it, we, we we do that on a large scale yeah. so there's the scale of our frameworks they're eligible across the uk for construction um uh, so last five years about two and a half billion went through scale frameworks one form or another so it's, it's big scale there's several several hundred projects but it's, it's important as well uh, Chris, to, to to and probably not people. A lot of people don't really get this. They're not involved in procurement. So, uh, and having been in procurement or having been involved in procuring large scale contracts, the complexity of some of these contracts, the detail, the contractual detail within that, yeah. is significant. And if you know Dan and Alex and, and I have discussed this um, just over the last few months, but one of the contracts I worked on before I left the, my last local authority was five hundred hours. Was five hundred hours we spent on that specific contract. So, yeah. I guess it's a bit collective or individual action here, isn't it? And surely, if if the six authorities you have as your founding members have the same issues, well, collective action surely is the way to go. Yeah, well, and and to give you an idea um, of of the effort we put in. Uh, to procure one of our national frameworks, the, the, the construction framework we let last year, um, was two years of man hours. Wow! But so, but that's that's in terms of both designing it, writing it, preparing it, and then yeah. also evaluating. And the evaluation process involved a panel of about twenty-two people. Wow! So we, it's it's not an insignificant undertaking, yeah. um, and we take it deadly serious because we have to get it. We have, really do have to get that as right as you can because there's so much risk. Because yeah. of the duration of these things, it's 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 a waste of time if it doesn't work. So we we, we do have to commit a lot of effort. Mm-hmm. So presumably you build into that. Sorry for cutting you off, Dan. Um, uh, presumably you build into that um, the uh, ability to kind of ha- have some flexibility in, uh, on price on material prices. You know, to take account mm-hmm. of, yeah. of of the kind of the volatility that we've had recently. Yeah. So so the um, we we are really. Um, we're really quite progressive and very consistent about the way we approach pricing of our frameworks. So we we procure and select the providers who are going to be running it um, on the basis of the last ones we did was 70% quality, 30% price. Wow. That's the evaluation. And the the price element, we are evaluating based on um, overhead and profits. We're not evaluating based on the cost of the work. Mm. Each When each customer works and sets their projects up, the uh, the actual delivery cost of that project are defined at the time with the contractor and the, the way it is at the minute um you'll struggle to get a contractor to hold works prices for a month at the moment mm. based on the yeah. inflation so so um it has to work like that mm. um it means that there's flexibility over time but it also means certain things we we get very efficient economies of scale on by buying at scale so we get some of the labor rates the overhead and profit rates are pretty competitive because we're buying at the scale we buy at so it's yeah, it's 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 the, the the tricky bit, the bit that the art form, if you like, about the commercial side working is um, while we set the rules of the game in the framework and the way that the project is going to be priced is predetermined and it's quite well structured. Ultimately, it's still a conversation between a client, their cost advisor, and the contractor to put a price together that they're happy with, and it, it it's still procurement for the client. The client's still signing a contract and entering into a building contract. They're not 
we're not doing that for them. They still have to do that bit. We just provide the rules of the game, if you like. So it's still an onerous process. And, and that's one of the reasons why we don't just procure the framework walk off from Skate's yeah. perspective. We go and support the client in that process. We work with them on how it works. We advise them on how to do it and we, we make sure that, that the contractor's following the rules as they go because that's the bit that um, yeah. so there are frameworks out there that it's very speculative to throw the, throw the thing together and leave the client to their own devices effectively, yeah. um, which is immoral in our opinion. <laughs> and just get back to the point before, though, is that, you know, go, go back to the ability for other smaller organisations to access the parity of prices at the larger you know, you mentioned yeah. in, in, in the start, you know, Gateshead, Derby, Norton, these are big authorities, you know, big big players in their own right who would who would normally be able to broker a, a you know commercially a very good deal. But is that the benefits of of of, of access to your contracts from smaller organizations is both in time and and, and, and cost? Is that primarily what the, the driver is? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean we 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 you you gotta bear in mind with so I'm I'm just looking now at the um I'm, I've got to do a quick sum, but the um the number of the number of individual projects we're talking about um, over the last five years uh, is is well the number of individual call offs from our frameworks is a couple of thousand. Um, so the sort of average the average commission uh, when you take all of our works contracts of all the different sizes is about a million pound. So so we're not dealing with thirteen sixty million projects. We're dealing with hundreds and hundreds of smaller scale projects which is and, and a lot of the organizations that work with us will just procure one project hmm. once every five years um you know they've got an urgent civic need for something specific they come to us for help and that's the only buying of construction that they do for a period of time which right. is a really it's a really important part of why frameworks matter because um a, a small borough council a small district council sometimes parish councils just don't have the resources yeah. to go through construction procurement. They don't have the expertise. Yeah. So we 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 can take a lot of that specialism out of the system as being necessary. It's it's something we sort of aggregate the value in. And and, and of course we, we we really try to be adding that value, try to be expert in that, try to make sure we've got people who can who can do that well so that we we, mm-hmm. we do give a decent service. But yeah, that's that's the model. Um and it, it's 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 working all right. Um it so, works all right, we, and we have a. I suppose one one of the things to a little bit on the landscape of frameworks in construction. So, Scape Scape is one of several providers out there. Um, there's an organisation called the National Association of Construction Frameworks that we're part of, um, which is the sort of public sector owned, is legitimately public framework providers. Um, and those those organisations all have different solutions, and they are slightly different. So. Um, some of those frameworks offer mini competitions. So when you come to actually use the framework for your project, you you entertain three or four prizes from three or four contractors who've all been appointed to the framework. And every time you call off from it, you go through that process. Scape's model is direct award. So we we select the best that we can find at the start of the framework and clients can directly access that supplier and they don't have to go through a further competition. So that's, that's a deliberate choice on our part to do it that way. Um, it offers something different for the client and the market. Um, and it, it is important that there's diversity of solutions because um, the the need, that the, the, those different options offer different things for different projects. There's a reason why you might want to go mini competition on one project and an instant start on another. Um, we, we with the, Our preference with director what well, is partly about supply chain commitment to the framework, genuine collaboration, um, and also about early supply chain involvement. 
if you don't have to go through mini competition, if you can just go straight to work with one main contractor, it gives you an awful lot of flexibility to start sooner, to start talking about the challenges of the project to get the reality in. Um, and from my point of view as an environmentalist, being able to have the conversation about carbon in projects, being able to talk about the impact of the building before you start designing it is extremely material. And my, my opinion is the people who know for new build construction, the people who know the material supply chains and the innovation the best are the contractors because they're the ones doing all the buying. Um, it's it's I'm, I'm a big fan of environmental consultants and good design, but I also think we have to be realistic about who's having the conversations with those manufacturers most of the time. Mm. So from our point of view, the best way to get that product innovation close to the client quickly is to have early contractor involvement. So we described rigidity in the system. So you create a relatively rigid framework to enable people to engage with it. But we're, just, we're, we're talking about delivering complex systems, so particularly construction, yeah. in a landscape that's changing and learning. And Jeff, you can jump in on what's going on in Ireland at the moment because uh, the, the discussion yesterday after this grand retrofit success, there was uh, a whole heap of fear thrown into the mix because – particularly something like retrofit, like the frameworks that they're trying to develop there to deliver this, this grand national program, mm -hmm. uh, they feel like they've just been put in jeopardy because there has been an acknowledgement that people need to learn as they go. And it's not always going to be success in a new field because you're creating a system that needs to be, that needs to learn as it goes. And like some failure has to be accepted as a part of that without jeopardizing the whole endeavor. How do you even approach something like that? I mean, presumably you do. Um, we do. Yeah, we have to. So, I mean, and, and there's, uh, the obvious reason we have to deal with that is because um, to facilitate what we're facilitating, we have to be able to accommodate a big diversity of projects. So the, the actual requirements coming in the front end of the project are very variable. So um, we, 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 in terms of sector range and, and scope, the construction framework at the minute has dealt with everything from single classroom extensions on schools through to, um you know, the Met Office supercomputer building went through scape framework. So that that's a, a a little illustration. There's all kinds of things in in there, the weird and wonderful, but it's all public civic stuff. So there's not it's not going to be completely off the wall, but but there is quite a diversity. So obviously you have to have a system that allows that. Um what what we try to do, the framework, the framework acts like a rule book in terms of the the way the parties engage, the the sort of structure of the conversation. So we what we've done is we've we've built a framework process around the RIBA plan of works, and we're very clear that the the activities that are expected in a good project should be followed. So, what the rulebook says is the contractor and the client should talk about their project information strategy, their project sustainability strategy. The contractor should really challenge the client to make sure there's a brief, and and those are the things that our contract says have to happen. And then we have very clearly defined stages where the contractor has to put together a contractual price pre-construction and then construction. We have very clearly defined rules about how they put that price together. Um, but what we're not doing is defining the solution. We're defining the structure of how the solution is to be found and the way that the, the two parties work together, the form of contract. But we're not telling the two parties what to do. We're telling them how how to how to move through that process, so if you like. You described uh like the the uh, the works you've inherited and that what you've been learning from those and that you're still engaged to to an extent like are you able to include any sort of validation or assessment of success within this framework 
Yeah. Uh, like, how does that even work? Because like, yeah, post occupancy performance data is something that we yeah. we are hot for, but it's really difficult to get your hands on. Yeah. So this is this is where. Um, so this is this is one of the things that we're quite conscious of is, is as a framework operator, we're actually in quite a unique position to be able to help with that because we span across all these organizations. So there is an opportunity for us to do more than just the procurement. Um, but what, what we've done with the so if we just consider project success criteria and how we make that work for a client, what we've done is we've not we've not we've not said what success looks like, but we have said the, the terms in which success will be defined. So, you know, we, we on a simplistic basis, time and cost need to be defined in the contract. And then that's either done or it isn't done. And, and we have a good success rate on that because we don't really allow a project to start unless the stuff's been defined properly. Um, but, but the process we've gone through with the frameworks over time is we've got more sophisticated about the, the process we asked um, to happen at the start. So in this generation of framework, the, com- the conversation we require, the the contractor and the client to have uh, we really instill a discipline where they have to talk about sustainability in that process we, we we ask them to to have the conversation with the client what is your outcome expectation of this building how do you want this building to be used um and in and i've literally this week been going through the 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 process with some of the contractors about trying to find consistent approaches to some of those conversations around so how are we going to ensure we've got a building performance target on operational energy on operational water use um and initially we as a framework operator are just asking the contractors to, to make us aware of what targets are being set and we support them in measuring and monitoring that um but we know we're in a position where we can share good practice and um highlight to clients what works and what doesn't work so we take quite a lot of responsibility um for that over time that's great to hear. That sounds fascinating um in that regard um so one of the things I, I was keen to know, Chris, um, procurement authorities, I'm just wondering to what extent you have the ability to, to, to frame uh, uh, their ambitions, I suppose, when it comes to procurement. So um, I'll give you an example. Um, there's, there's a voluntary EN standard uh, called EN 16798. Uh, there's dash one and dash two, and there's a million kind of offshoots of it um, from 2019. And it sets um, the thermal comfort parameters for energy performance calculation methodologies, right? Um, and it has within it, the thing that's really interesting about it is that it has four different uh, comfort classes depending on the occupancy type, right? Category one through, through four. Category one is for vulnerable people, elderly people and, and kids and people with disabilities. And category four is for temporary buildings, for instance. Um, and they set um, uh, minimum and maximum temperatures during winter and summer, for instance. Um, and uh, the amount of hours that each building type is going to be assumed to, 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 to be uh, heated to those temperatures. And then, and then they specify the amount of time during the year that they're expected to be within a certain range um, in order to, to define which class it's in. So we're seeing, I mean, the, the case that Dan referenced about um, the, the bit of a scandal or, or, or the media uh, Furore um, over uh, over retrofit in Ireland now um, in light of our new plans. Some at least some of the issue with this relates to uh, a sheltered housing scheme in uh, Wexford where uh, they were deep retrofitted to a very low energy standard um, um, and expected to perform 
at an A2 under our national rating scale. And one of the, the 12 units performed, or it was 12, I think it was, uh, performed at a, at a C1 rating, right? Um, because it was an alpha uh, in there who who was in there all the time heating the whole building to 25 degrees all the time he's delighted with the place but but the uh, the usage is way way higher uh, than the quite meager assumptions in the national uh, calculation tool right uh, which are which are basically assuming roughly about probably 19 degrees for 8 hours a day uh, during the heating season rather than 25 you know all year round um, so do you do you have scope within your frameworks to um to to uh, look beyond, uh, you know, to set more ambitious targets, taking account, for instance, of occupancy type. I mean, yeah. Do you can you account for people, actual people in your framework, not just like idealized econ units or right. human activity? That's right. It's it's so the the challenge for us is in creating something that offers the ability to impose that rigor um, without us imposing it on everything all the time that that's the challenge so we have to be flexible but so what we've done we, we've created a contract now we got we got a we got a there's several pathways in the framework now you can use we, we have a, a new one called life cycle which is designed to establish and set building performance targets as part of the project um so the effectively what we're saying in that contract is the contractor the contracting industry generally is is we we are going to set an expectation that they will work with the client for five years post occupancy because we want them to take responsibility for the performance of buildings they're building, and that's something that the contractors wanted as well as us, partly because they want to be able to provide some of the five year service and earn some money in that process. I don't think that's wrong, but ultimately we wanted to change the culture of build and walk away. So we we've created a contract where you can establish performance targets. And what we've done alongside that, um, in going into the procurement process and then on an ongoing basis, we created a, a, an environmental standards sort of recommendation set, which is in the back of the framework as a, as a, as a, specific, a specification, if you like, not, not, because, not because we wanted every project to go through that, because one, we wanted to select the contractors on their capability to do it. So we wanted to make sure that we set a really high bar on capability. So if a client does ask for that kind of performance, it's going to be able to be possible for them. And then the second thing is by having that, that recommended standard set, it provokes a conversation with the client about the standards we think are a good idea. So we, we've got the, um, we've got the, uh, the sort of thermal uh, heating performance ratings in those performance standards linked to um, 2030 Climate Challenge, the Letty Design Guide. For net zero new buildings and we've got the NFIT standards in there as well so we've, we've tried to give clients a, a guide to the kind of outcome targets that they might consider setting we're also but we're but we are really wary of over dictating the solution to problems because that you, you mentioned about innovation and change and, and if we are too prescriptive about problem solving then there's no flexibility for year four of the framework if something different comes along so we have to be quite careful to create something but so what we've said in the framework this time is we will make adjustments to those recommended standards over time um they, they don't we, we've used a particular set of standards at the start of the framework to, to choose the supply chain but having the conversation with clients on an ongoing basis with improving standards is not a problem um that's, that's the way we've chosen to handle it and we we could you could argue we could we could employ a dedicated building performance um building performance officer to go and talk to every client every time um 
at the moment we're not in that place and we haven't got the resources for that but those are the kind of conversations that we we certainly are happy to talk to clients about um when when they start a project but my, my challenge is um getting clients ambition to the right place it's half the battle so so laying down some standards in the framework which might at least inspire or challenge clients to think a bit differently is is a start for us but yeah we 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 we, we face a huge problem in the public sector in that um, we, we've written a contract called life cycle because we want people to think about building in terms of success over a much longer term than the moment they're built or, or refurbished. Um, but that's not the culture of clients in this country. We've got an endemic industry problem of race to the bottom cost up front and um, not seeing success in its rounded terms, in its long term, which, and, and unfortunately, especially in England, the budgets for investment and then maintenance are completely separate and often maintained by two different people in organizations so there's there's some huge structural challenges to making this happen but we've at least got the tools there if people do go that way and we can help them with it too much pride in profit not enough in quality of work sorry alex no i was going to ask on this of everything you've just said now i was really curious to understand more how the end user was involved in the actual development of the frameworks if at all um, where do they, do they even come into the equation or is it still just very much between the contractors and the, the clients or do the end user have, have a voice somewhere or where is that voice? It's so difficult that Alex, I mean, from our, from our point of view as framework designer, um, we, we have enough trouble getting clients to come and talk to us in designing the framework. And we, we are fortunate to have some councils who are owners and we have them fairly close to us so we can go and see them we have some clients who work with us regularly who like to talk to us it's actually really difficult surprisingly difficult to get people who are likely to go through this route for for procurement to talk to you about how it's going to work before they get to a project so um and in terms of end user feedback that is another level of challenge so we, we obviously we, we we always say to clients it's written into the process when you're preparing your brief when you're kicking your project off we like we like to encourage everyone in the project to get all the stakeholders around the table at the start. It says that's what should happen in the process, but um, it is ultimately down to the client to bring those people to the table and the client's project manager. We can't we can't be there because of the volume. We'd love to be at the front of every conversation. It, it, it logistically for us at the minute it's not 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 achievable, but it, but we would love to be able to influence more. Um, I, I think. We do we do quite a lot in the sort of community impact social value space around delivery and, and we're always hearing um uh, contractors do lots of great corporate social responsibility stuff but the, the impact locally in the community is never talked about and no one ever actually says that was good uh, and that that that's afterwards when you would think they would be chuffed because you've got some some added value created locally whatever but now it start to finish it seems to be a problem that we do unto our users rather than work with them um it's another, another scope here. Uh, if you're bringing post-occupancy evaluation in as an optional kind of requirement that can be included in the frameworks, um, <laughs> you set the parameters then for the post-occupancy evaluation to include uh, the likes of, uh, I don't know, the building use studies methodology where you, uh, we had um, Adrian Lehman and Bill Bordas on the podcast uh, a couple of months ago. Um, and they, you know, they've, in other words, found a way to standardize and, and make kind of quantifiable um, the feedback from building users, um, and and related to that, if you are bringing in post occupancy evaluation in into the frameworks, um, it can't surely just be a question of uh, showing how bad 
the building may have ended up being. Now, of course, there'll be some success stories too. Um, there's got, is there a way to kind of try and uh, build upon that um, to take, you know, to encourage uh, uh, the clients to take the findings from that in an anonymized way or whatever needs to be done um, to, so that there are learning outcomes, which then go on to inform uh, uh, the frameworks uh, to, to, you know, to, to, to make tweaks and, and, and improvements and, and change direction. Yeah, I, we 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 obviously do do a lot of work at the end of each project to understand what happened and get some feedback. The but not in the post occupancy phase and um, yet we have we have the framework talks about post occupancy evaluation and asks the contractor to work with the client to do it. Um, we aren't always party to the that conversation, and I think it is something for the future. I'd be really interested to follow up your suggestion. Actually, I mean, what what we have done in in that life cycle model we've created is we've made building performance a contractual obligation. So effectively, we, we've got that five years of aftercare is not just five years where the client is paying the contractor to service the boiler. Um, the idea is that we've locked in building performance efficiency targets that the, the client is then making contractually enforceable. The contractor's on the hook for those. So it's light touch energy performance contracting in some ways. But what we've tried to do is make sure that the contract's reflecting that. So we've um, we we the NEC are consulting on an X29 is a climate action clause at the minute in the NEC contract, which deals with the impact of construction, and it's 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 very it's a, it's a good piece of work. From our point of view, what we've done with the life cycle is is write a contract that effectively says the building is defective unless it is performing at the level contractually defective. So um, the moving parts are effectively contractually defective until they've been proven to be effective. Mm-hmm. Um, which is the way we structured it. So that's that's culturally been a challenge. Our contractors have winced a bit when we yeah. set it out, but we also said to them, "Listen, the the deal is." And bear in mind, this is early. This is an early adoption phase. We're only just getting clients starting to use this. But we we've said to the contractors, "This is your obligations." But we've also said, "And this is also an opportunity for you to earn a bit more revenue after the project." And and the 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 building performance elements are dealt with in incentives within the contract so if it's going well they can design an extra reward if it's not going well then they should be expected to put that right and that's the way we try to deal with it so from my point of view economically there should be money to deal with that issue because if the contractor does it right the building's cheaper to run than they expected it to be and everybody's happy um that's the um, that's the vision anyway I think that's really progressive, Chris, and it's quite, I can imagine contractors would win that, but I think it's about turning, you know, um, challenges and over to opportunities. But just come back to the client to the client base, and it is, again, refreshing to hear a procurement entity who is in, who is engaged in the design, the specification, and in, in, in that respect, That's I think that's really positive. And, and having been involved in the local authority and, and understanding procurement, I, I completely get you know that that space you're in has has the ask from clients, and I don't just mean your core members, but has the ask changed? Are things changing in terms of the last five years or so? Are you in terms of retrofit? Uh, what what what's changing? Who's asking for the types of products and services, and what what difference is there? Do you think there's a move? Clearly, there is a move for heat pumps, but what are, what are clients asking for? And, and yeah, how are you responding to that? What what what's what's going on in the market from what was going on five six years ago? It's it's, it's an amazing question, Duncan, because it's there's a lot going on. I mean, the 
the encouraging thing is clients are starting to say, how can you help with this? What can we do with this? Um, we've got a lot of, uh, bear in mind, lots of our customers are local authorities. We've got a lot of local authorities whose politicians have declared a climate emergency and now they're going, wait, what do we do? <laughs> um, which is, I mean, on one hand, great, because they've realised they've put themselves in a situation where they actually have to act. And, and we're hearing several local authorities being put under the pump by citizens saying, guys, you said you were going to do something. What are you doing? And that's great. Um, it's really encouraging. The, the, so we are getting some, um, we're getting project managers and clients sort of coming to us saying, yeah, what's possible? What can I do? Um, we, we, we've got one or two progressive lo local authorities and progressive clients coming to us because we've created a progressive solution. Um, but we've also got a situation where a huge number of clients have either got their head in the sand or aren't aware of what they need to be doing differently. Um, so we're trying our best to be an influencer and an educator in that space, but it, it's a challenge. Um, I think the the bit that we're really encouraged by, we, we, we before we procured our latest construction framework, so we're going back uh, two years, two and a bit years now, is we, we sort of engaged the, the main contractor marketplace. We got 20 of them around the table and said, if we go in with minimums with minimum standards and capability levels at this level will you bid are you okay with that and are you up for the challenge because we think that's where we've got to go and we actually offered them a choice we said well we could go to the market with a a net zero lot in the framework so we have a dedicated contractor whose job it is to build on a higher spec and everyone else can just do it the way they've always done it or we can raise the bar for everybody and we gave them that direct choice and the entire contractor market opted for raising the bar across the piece. None of them wanted to be not green. Now, um, we were pleased by that, and we've sort of flipped that round on them and challenged them and said, you guys are there at pre-construction. You guys are there at the early stages of projects. We need you to educate, and we need you to do some work on that. So quite pleased with the response. So we, I mean, we've got one of our contractors who's, who's very heavily engaged in funding carbon literacy for clients at the moment. So they will, when they when they work with a the client, they offer them free carbon literacy training for the property department, which is yeah. that kind of impact is is what we need at the moment. Anyone who's got more intelligence than the other person needs to share it yeah. for me. That's the only way this is going to go faster. So, yeah, um, often the other way around, unfortunately. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because we uh, we often talk. I often talk about the ability, and and I wonder whether you know there's the uh, we're, we're um um taping this in and and Friday and up here in Scotland the news is about seven hundred pound price. I think most people's bills have now gone up today and and there's a bit of that and I wonder how that will come through in terms of the client side who, you know, a lot of your your clients are a lot of your customers, a lot of your um, members, sorry, are social landlords and social landlords are probably at the um, you know, face a significant risk in terms of their customer base and, and fuel poverty. So I wonder if that will be a driver to 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 change things. But I think there's a great opportunity for how public sector procurement and how pub the public sector can, because of the sheer size and scope of scale of it, can change things for the good. And you, you mentioned in, in, in the start, people like North, North, Nottingham is doing some pretty cool stuff. With the North. They've, they, you know, they, they've been doing quite a lot of really good work in, in, in retrofit. Yeah, um, the, they've done, um, uh, Nottingham City Council hosts the uh, Midlands Energy Hub, so they've got a, a really strong team. Mm. Um, and uh, they are, um, they've done they've done a number of pilots, uh, they've done some energy sprung 
um, yeah. housing retrofit in Nottingham. Yeah, yeah, they're very progressive. I mean, they set themselves a city target of net zero by 2028, which is, mm. um, as a place, a huge challenge. Um, and they get, they're going hard at it. They are really making an effort. I, I don't know how um, mm. how how it will go, but but it's definitely um, it's it's definitely setting a tone. And yeah. as one of our owners, it's it's almost given us permission to be quite progressive. Yeah. Um, yeah, that I mean that that's that's I saw that that's twenty twenty is as incredible challenging. But then again, you know, fair play because if you set a, an aspirational target, you got to start to work. I mean, you can set something twenty forty five, and you can you, you can basically park your worrying about it for five for five years. But no, that's uh, I think we we had spoken off off air about getting energy strong on because I think that's quite an interesting concept and and uh, and, and that. But um. But listen, we, we've probably run out of time, although if there's any questions for you. Alex, sorry, yeah, on you go. Well, maybe because it's the end of the podcast, I don't know if I'm opening up a, a whole new topic, but I think we've talked <laughs> about the frameworks and they are clearly very good. But what happens when frameworks go wrong? Mm-hmm. What is their impact? I think it's really worth having at least one quick conversation about that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd like to, Alex, because we, we, we have a huge... <laughs> a huge duty to a number of stakeholders in the economy and it's a it it feels heavy sometimes that responsibility so um we, we you know we, we our model is to work with principal contractors and to pass down the food chain responsibilities to try and involve different organizations you you will read criticism of frameworks not involving small and medium enterprises not giving innovation a chance all of that stuff um we our perspective on that is that the by creating frameworks that have competitive tendering within them you you almost create a commercial prerogative to race to the bottom even within what you've set up and there's a danger that that drives out the things you want our philosophy is if we work in a partnering sense with the big organizations we can ask them to take that moral responsibility on and empower them to do some of the work that sometimes public sector clients have to deal with themselves so we've done we've done some well, I mean, I could I could spend an hour talking to you about the progressive things you can do in the supply chain. But one illustration of that um, is we've worked with the main contractors to create a social enterprise engagement platform um, called the Social Partnership Portal. That is a collective supply chain buying platform. It's not a it's not a tendering platform. It's a market visibility tool for the buyers in construction companies to find social enterprises that have worked in the construction supply chain um, and getting all of them on it is they can cross recommend so a, a social enterprise that's worked for weights construction is now visible to wilmot dixon or to kia and they can say oh right there's a social enterprise in this area that does cleaning let's talk to them it's a uh, we, we we basically took a view that we would work with the contractors to procure something for them all to use so we created this online platform for um for them to engage with social enterprise, for them to identify social enterprises that can work in construction and to share visibility of those organisations. So there's no obligation for anyone to buy from anyone else. But the challenge for social enterprises in the supply chain is you have to know the buyers. You have to know the people who purchase in construction companies. um, And you have to go through what is a pretty expensive process of becoming visible. Um, And what the social partnerships platform does is it, it, it puts it puts that social enterprise market through a process where they are consistently visible and the contractors can say, we have worked with this organization before. So mm. that, that word of mouth, it's like a, a digital word of mouth. Um, but it's also, it's also like a social enterprise, yellow pages. 
and we've, we've worked with SE Scotland, Social Enterprise UK to try and get their databases integrated and to try to make sure that we're giving. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the power of that approach um, is exponentially beneficial for the client if, if the contractor has got that network. Yeah. The client doesn't have to look for it, and the the, the some of those social enterprises do phenomenal work. Yeah. They're just incredible. So we've got one in Nottingham, um, Radiant Cleaning, who, who are they're there to uh, one of their, their social purposes is to employ survivors of modern slavery, and they 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 look to give people a sustainable job legally and to help them get into to housing. Um, so by by getting the site cabins cleaned, suddenly contractors helping that happen. Mm. Um, so it's, a, it's one little illustration of the potential, um, yeah. and we, we by having the buying power and the scale of operation we have, and by acting with that social conscience, we can we can create something that uh, it kind of you kind of channel that philosophy into these organisations which might not otherwise think like that. That's just, well, that's, absolutely that's brilliant, brilliant, really that's inspiring story to be able to to yeah. throw into the mix. I, I, I love it. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you when you're talking about contractors. Um, having uh ongoing contracts performance related contracts um uh is there scope within that for including within it uh a requirement for contractors to log um maintenance requirements for buildings over time you know i mean like a digital logbook almost of of um uh of of what went into the building um and uh you know in other words take account of because if we're talking about the life the life cycle of the building uh, we want to make, ensure that we're procuring in a way that the that, that the building and the constituent parts will last for as long as possible and that they're maintained properly to ensure that they continue to last. Um, so it would be lovely to see, I mean, it's tied in with the idea even then of um, some pr- pr- some traction happening in, in Ireland and in, uh, at European level with these uh, building renovation passports and the digital log books that you, so that you know, mm. um, you know, so that future generations, even in some cases, will know exactly how a building is built. Uh, not just the, the lofty stuff that went into the architect's spec in the first instance, but taking account of what the contractor actually put in, you know, um, mm-hmm. so that you're in a much more informed position when, when it comes to doing maintenance as well. Is there um, scope for that? Yeah. Can I bottle you, Jeff, and take you into conversations with clients? Because so we, we, we've got a we're doing a, a cross contractor project at the minute around supporting the adoption of building information management and not 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 we're trying not to say BIM too often because we're not talking about everybody perceives that as 3D modeling. Mm. We, we, what we're trying to encourage is the spirit of good information management and actually establishing records that are available in a usable format for the client. And actually having a conversation with the client about that being important before the project takes place rather than afterwards. Mm. Um, it is a enormous problem for us, um, not because it's a bad idea. I agree with everything you're saying, Jeff, but because getting anyone to wake up and understand what we're talking about seems to be very difficult. The, there is a there is a layer of intelligent client out there who get it, want mm. it. Uh, the university clients, the MOJ, some of the some of the MOD clients. Um, some individual local government clients, amazing, but the vast majority of clients um, are uh, completely unaware or, or uninformed about that side of things at the moment. I think that there's a there's a bit more going on in the areas where the planning regs have started to talk about circular economy because people are starting to go, well, hang on, what do I have to do to deal with that at the end of a building's life? And suddenly there's a bit more discussion. But it's a, it's it's not something that 
we're afraid of trying to tackle and we are we are looking at it together with the contractors but it's it's a big problem in terms of awareness of the problem and understanding of, of why and, and and it's not even with jeff i think you're referring to sort of end of life and maintenance product management and that stuff i think it's a problem even in the basic sense of uh your sort of traditional um, o&m manual your, your handover information and what the built the client needs to do to maintain the building mm. that that i know because i've i've QA'd some of them the quality of the O&M manuals the handover information some of our contractors produce is fantastic some of them do it on digital formats all sorts but if the client puts that on a, an actual metaphorical shelf and never looks at it again yeah um and we, we've got to find a way because the, 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 the industry because of because of the BIM stuff the 3D work and all that the, the, the higher end of the industry has got very good at that digital collaboration mm. the real benefit of all of that's for the client and none of it's happening mm. um it's 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 creating efficiency within a project but the actual long-term value of that information is being squandered at the minute just just wasted but it also it's also critical because you know the client has some responsibility here too so if a building doesn't perform as expected um sometimes it's because the client isn't operating the building as it was intended to be used you know um so uh you know this this information having this kind of uh paper trail or whatever um is going is going to be very important i think even you know as we move into this new landscape of actually looking uh to ensure the buildings work properly um in terms of climate and so on um it's going to be this this kind of evidence is going to be really critical to to protect uh yeah. you know the, the 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 designer the contractor and and client and everyone involved and know where the issues arise and you know and where the responsibility yeah. lies we we got some we we some of us are trying to look on the bright side of the building safety bill as as potentially being a hook that starts to get people thinking like that because it, it at least there the client's got legitimate responsibilities for knowing where things are and what they do um but I, I heard a great story from one of our contractors yesterday he said um they have um they they have a tendency to do the bells and whistles for a client it might be a tiny bit more expensive but it's it's a showing off piece so here's a bms that automatically opens the windows and uh they were talking to me yesterday about the they've they've got a client at the minute who was savvy enough to say, I don't want that because I'm the the, the tutors in the college we're building are not going to want that. They're going to want to be able to control the room. They're going to want to be able to have some control. And the and mm. and the, the guy who runs this college really forward thinking. He said, I want them to be able to avoid wasting energy and keep mm. the room comfortable. Mm. So I want something else. So they, the, the the system they've ended up with is uh, much more hybrid ipad controlled with some manual stuff as well and and yeah. um, i've got mate in facilities management whose whose belief that the best way of getting energy efficient buildings is placebo is to give people thermostats not connected <laughs> to everything and, and just just let people have the belief of control and actually just keep the building at 18 degrees at all time <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's uh, i i'm sympathetic to that view in some ways um but uh i think you have to allow people uh some degree of, of control you know you, you you can't i don't think you're gonna you're, you're gonna win people over if they have this this sense that 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 big brother <laughs> over everything they're doing and controlling absolutely no, what they're doing you know um, but 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 there is a piece of now i was talking to talking to someone last night actually he's a he's a history lecturer but he he, he was showing me some photos because he's researching police and criminology at the minute but he had pictures of of people in the early 1900s in pubs and everyone's wearing a three-piece wool suit with a very thick shirt and a full greatcoat with their pint in their hand um and we were yeah. like what's, 
why is this outdoors or is this indoors? And they just didn't heat pubs, yeah. didn't heat railway stations. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't wasn't thought necessary. And uh, uh, we've, 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 yeah. we've, as a society, acclimbed ourselves to gas central heating and all of that, haven't we? Um, yeah. But we, we just said the blessing of all of that is that at least the Weatherspoons in 1900 served cold beer. If you left it on the table long enough, <laughs> it would be gone. <laughs> Chris, this has been, it's been really, really encouraging. And I think, you know, uh, you've taken if you don't mind me saying, I think what outside of a small group would maybe quite a dry subject. And this has been, you know, both insightful and encouraging, but, but, but quite inspiring as well. And I think what, what, what I think people could and should take from this Alex question earlier on, I think there's a tremendous positive force that public or procurement can, can have. And I think what we probably should start to think about procurement in the terms of, and I've done this, slide to death in various presentations about the impact on and i think is why we we started this podcast you know we think the built environment has such an impact on society on health on the economy yeah. on the climate and i think we need to view procurement in those kind of terms if, if, if it's a much more holistic approach to our overall lives in the economy and society but this has been great it's, it's been really um i mean we're kind of running out of time but i'm, I'm i think it'd be great to get you back on and talk about specific projects if if, if you're up for that yeah, if, if uh, with with uh, with some planning time, if you if you if you let me know, and and not just me, because because we've got a good network. So if there's an area that you want to explore, and bearing in mind, Scape's forte is is civic construction. Um, we're still, mm. although it's swinging quite quickly at the minute, we we tend to do new build, but there's loads of refurb stuff going on at the way as well. But I've got, I've got contacts, the sort of sustainability leads, carbon leads design leads at most of the main contractors so if there's any of those topics you want to talk about we can get them on oh are you kidding uh, yeah, so absolutely much, yeah, been, yeah it's been um really yeah it has been uh, inspiring and I, I i'm not one who tends to you know to just uh yeah i i i tend to balk at, at, at that kind of that using he's not, like that. He's, not easy, he's not easily inspired chris he's, an, he's not easily inspired <laughs> listen, no, okay. very good but chris listen thanks so much for coming on this has been brilliant thank you for your time and let's get you back on soon yeah uh, thanks for having me